Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. We are super glad you're with us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. And to celebrate, we've got two good martinis today, as well as one bad, bad, bad martini. And you can probably guess which one that is, if you can remember all the way back to uh, Friday. I know it was uh, an extra long weekend. We're hopefully grateful for that extra hour of sleep. Welcome to Standard Time. Now, for those of you in Hawaii and Arizona, you're like, yeah, it's just like every other day. So... In some ways, I'm jealous of you people, but not this weekend. This weekend, I like. It's the one in the spring that uh, is really tough. But uh, anyway, let's talk about our first good martini, Jim. And this news comes to us courtesy of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Because on Saturday, that court temporarily halted the Biden administration's COVID-19 vaccine requirement for businesses with 100 or more workers. Uh, Jim has been chronicling uh, throughout the past many, many weeks now after Biden's emergency uh, order for OSHA to make this rule that, you know, this rule never came. Well, late last week, they finally got around to it. And uh, now all the lawsuits are beginning, uh, mainly from state's attorneys general, but uh, private employers are doing so as well. Uh, The Fifth Circuit granted, according to CBS News, an emergency stay of the requirement by the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration that those workers be vaccinated by January 4th or face mask requirements and weekly tests. Louisiana Attorney General Jeff Landry said the action stops Democratic President Joe Biden, quote, from moving forward with his unlawful overreach. Quote, the president will not impose medical procedures on the American people without the checks and balances afforded by the Constitution. However, the solicitor of labor, Seema Nanda, is confident in its legal authority uh, at the Department of Labor to issue the emergency temporary standard on vaccination and testing. So it's already going to the uh, Court of Appeals. It'll probably get fast-tracked to the Supreme Court. However, the uh, Court of Appeals rules on it, which will probably be in favor of the challengers in this case, given the the, the more conservative bent of the Fifth Circuit. But, uh, Jim, we've talked ad nauseum on this podcast. Uh, whatever you think of the vaccines, whether it's a good idea, the idea that the government is going to make you force your employees to take it, or you get massive fines to the point where you can't afford to keep them, is egregiously wrong. Yeah, this is a worker. This is a, you know, a mandate for the vaccine without being a you know literal government, you know, runs around and collects people and jabs them with stuff, whether they want to or not. Um, I, I, over the weekend, Ron Klain was on one of the Sunday shows and he said, look, this is going to be sorted out through the courts before the January 4th enforcement deadline. So we're not too worried about it. And maybe that is the case. But I do. You know, most of us have noticed that, like the argument that OSHA was saying for you know enacting this rule without the standard um, review process that you ordinarily would occur when they want to impose a new regulation on a whole bunch of government, you know, on a whole bunch of businesses. Usually you have a certain amount of time in which businesses and everybody who's going to be affected by it or anybody who's got a strong opinion could come out and say, well, I think you should do it this way. I think you should do it that way. This is good. This is bad, et cetera, et cetera. And the government's when, when this was announced, OSHA said, look, because the president's doing this by executive order, this is an emergency. We don't have time for that taking opinion from businesses and stuff like that. It's just it's too darn important. We don't have time to explain, as Jack Bauer would say. <laughs> Just open a socket. <laughs> of course, they did that, and they made the announcement, and then two months went by before they actually issued the regulations, which made people say, well, wait a second. If this is an emergency, why is it taking so long? Then regulations do come out, as they make very clear. They will be in effect after two months, 
which now means you have a four-month window from when Biden announced we're going to do this until which they go in effect. It certainly looks like the Biden administration and OSHA heard from groups like the National Association of Wholesaler Retailers who are like, look, if you try to do this right before the holidays, we're going to have a bunch of employees who don't want to get vaccinated. And these employers are like, we don't agree with these employees. But we're already short-staffed as is, as you may have noticed. If you make us fire them, if you make us get rid of them before this uh, before the holidays, we'll be laying even more people off. You're going to have even more disruption. The supply chain is going to get even worse and everything's going to be uh, an even worse economic situation than it is right now. It certainly looks like the Biden administration said, OK, we're going to kick this down the road till January 4th. Um, there's an interesting question. I, other conservative legal experts who you look at the Wall Street Journal and places like that have said, look, the way they're doing this is so out of the ordinary, and the courts have been so strict about this use of this emergency authority in the past, there's no way this is going to pass constitutional muster. Now, this is just a temporary stay. This is just the first step. But I think it does kind of, it is part of a useful indicator that the courts are probably going to look at this pretty skeptically. Not certain. I think there's a pretty good chance that at some point, if it's all the way to the Supreme Court, the court is going to say, no, this is not within the normal mandate of the Occupational Safety and Hazard Administration. Um, the rule that you're trying to use here is uh, only supposed to be used when there's like toxic fumes or, or something like that. It is not an applicable uh, situation to these circumstances. Uh, COVID does not rise to this level. And by golly, you should not be uh, doing it this way. If you want to enact it, you can do it the legislative process, but the executive branch cannot just suddenly say, boom, we're putting this new requirement on employers. And oh, by the way, we're creating all these new headaches for um, for uh, for employers along the way. So good move. I'm glad to see this. I'm very pro-vaccine, but I'm very anti-vaccine mandate. And I think this is uh, an indicator of how the courts are rather to be very skeptical of this assessment of uh uh, of you know government power, uh, although I guess you know we probably shouldn't count any chickens until they hatch in that front. No, and uh, one word of caution from your colleague at National Review Online that I found very interesting, Dan McLaughlin, saying that it could be kind of tricky in the courts at this point because until you get to January fourth, uh, it might be determined that uh, whoever's complaining doesn't have standing, and so uh, given that employers won't know how that's going to be resolved until after January fourth, they're going to go on the cautious side and force everybody to get vaccinated, regardless of whether it ends up being mandated as a result of what the Supreme Court ultimately says anyway. So. Uh, not good, that aspect of it, but good that the courts are uh, are getting in here and, and hopefully this pause is going to uh, take effect at least until we get a final resolution. All right. Well, if you thought that was good news, that uh, the government uh, can't force you to do that or force employers to do that, I have more good news for you, and that's the fabulous products you can get through Omaha Steaks. I love Omaha Steaks. They send you these uh, wonderful cartons, crates, whatever you call it, just chock full of fantastic steaks bacon wrapped filet mignon i can't stress how good that is Uh, but the burgers are fantastic Uh, i also love the hot dogs the sides the potatoes are fantastic i've had a soft spot in my heart uh, just for the company itself since uh, a friend of mine sent me omaha steaks to celebrate the uh, birth of our oldest daughter a number of years ago So whatever you're doing, whether you're grilling, whether you are bringing people together, uh, Omaha Steaks, definitely the way to go. So get a jump on planning with easy, quality, delicious meals for those busy work and school nights. Go to omahasteaks.com and enter the code martini into the search bar and order the deluxe grill-out assortment. It includes over 30 entrees you can share with your family and... Uh, If you do sign up for that package with the code MARTINI, you'll save over 50% and you'll get 12 free burgers. 
And these are basically a steak between buns. So visit omahasteaks.com, keyword martini. Save over 50% when you order the deluxe grill-out assortment. Plus get 12 free Omaha Steaks burgers and keep making memories with the ones you love. One more time, omahasteaks.com, keyword martini. All right, Jim, on to our second good martini now. And for those who aren't patient, the uh, probe led by John Durham into the origins of the Trump-Russia collusion investigation has been tedious. The left has loved it, called it a waste of time. Uh, The right saying, what are you doing, man? Are you even working at all? Well, he's uh, trickled out a number of indictments now. And the latest one is a guy named Igor Danchenko, who is uh, considered one of the researchers for the now discredited uh, Steele dossier. And so as uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, reports, Jim, and you put this in the, the morning jolt today, uh, a transcript in the Danchenko indictment suggests that FBI officials knew Mr. Danchenko was lying about the dossier in 2017 interviews, but they did nothing to blow the whistle nor tell the public or Congress everything they had learned about the origins of the Russia collusion tale. And even beyond that, as uh, Andy McCarthy uh, and, and your editors laid out, uh, they knew he was lying, and they still went ahead with the FISA warrants based on the dossier. And so uh, you got Jonathan Turley writing over at the Hill suggesting that the more this onion gets peeled, the more it's obvious it's connected to the Hillary Clinton campaign. So maybe there's quite a bit of popcorn still coming on this story. Indeed, Greg. And one of the things that I put in the corner earlier today, just kind of observing that It was not that long ago you could find people on both the right and the left who argued that John Durham, who was this enormously respected uh, longtime federal prosecutor, that it was a dud, that it was a dry hole, that it was he hadn't found anything, that this was a giant waste of time. Now, way back in November 2019, and it feels like a lifetime ago because a lot of things have happened since then, Greg, (laughs) um, that uh, I wrote, you know, I, I knew he was going to be a really important figure. So, and he's this enormous, this famously tight-lipped guy who never talks to reporters. So I just got in my head the idea, like, I'm going to, I'm going to find every public reference, every court record, every big case he's ever been a part of, and I'm going to talk to anybody who ever worked with him that I can get my hands on, and I'm going to try to write the biggest and most detailed and most thorough profile you can find on a guy who hates to talk to the press. And you know, I did it, and you know, got a pretty decent response there. And in the last two years, people would periodically throw this at me and say, oh, whatever happened to John Durham, Jim? Boy, what a dud he turned out to be. And particularly people who were uh, generally you know, fans of Trump were enormously disappointed that he did not hand out any big time indictments before Election Day 2020. And since then, a whole bunch of folks on the left have been thinking, oh, this is actually they were generally somewhat cautiously respectful early on. But once the election, it was like, clearly he's got nothing there. There's no evidence. This is a fishing expedition. He's turned into an independent prosecutor who uh, is just going to keep looking until he finds a crime, blah, blah, blah. And in the corner, I went through find people who declared his investigation a sham, a failure, as, quote, a seemingly aimless criminal investigation that began as a political vendetta on the part of Trump. Well, now, no, it's clearly not the case. The Danchico indictment basically comes out and says, look. If this there, there were a whole bunch of reasons the FBI could have and should have looked at this and figured out that this was partisan nonsense. It was, it was not supported that the people who were being cited as witnesses of, you know, this nefarious plot going on between Trump and the Russians, uh, they were lying. It was pretty obvious they were lying. They were not in a position to know the sorts of things they knew. And that even the minimum level of due diligence would have said to the FBI, OK, this is nothing. This is um, 
this is a partisan opposition research operation that's trying to con us into investigating Trump so that the Hillary Clinton campaign can say, aha, look, the FBI is investigating Trump over Russia. He's a Russian agent. He's tied in with Putin. Don't vote for him. Vote for me. And that's largely how things shook out. And there's been a whole bunch of editorials, not just from, from my colleagues at National Review, like Andy McCarthy, but also like the Wall Street Journal. People are pointing out, wait a minute, this was a Russia Gate was a huge story for two, you know, for years and years. The you know, this indictment basically makes the argument the whole thing was based on lies from the beginning, and everybody's just like, yeah, I'm not, not, not that interested. Nope, just kind of. I mean, the Steele dossier was kind of crap. It was it was kind of nonsense. The whole, you know, the, the infamous story of, of Trump and the hookers and what he wanted to do and all that kind of stuff, it always sounded kind of far-fetched or too perfect or the sort of thing somebody who absolutely hated Donald Trump would say. And, oh, by the way, went through the whole Mueller investigation. Mueller did not find any of this stuff to verify it. Now, it's kind of worth pointing out, and I think this is a, a, a black mark against Robert Mueller, he never really looked into, well, then where did the Steele dossier come from? And why did all this stuff get started? If you can't prove any of this stuff, why did this, you know, how did all of this justification for the FISA warrants and all that stuff come out? So I think a lot of people who were saying the Steele dossier is crap uh, are really vindicated by what this stuff is. And by the way, the other thing which I, I came out of that profile and I think is worth remembering is that um, I'm just going to quote one paragraph of my, one of my towards the end. I said, Dura will not speak to the press at all until he is done and probably not even then. He and his team are extremely unlikely to leak. He is not afraid to reach conclusions that will disappoint or frustrate Attorney General Barr or President Trump. He will not be rushed, which I should have underlined that in red. There's no guarantee that Durham will reach any prosecutorial decisions before the 2020 elections. And he will investigate so extensively and thoroughly that no reasonable observer will be able to argue that something important was missed. And that was the thing that came through throughout his whole career. John Durham takes his time. And he probably frustrates people by how slowly he seems to move, but he is methodical, he is detail-oriented. So by the time he shows up with that indictment, he's got a phenomenal record of getting convictions on indictments. I think there's a, he doesn't bring the case unless he, he's really confident he can win. So my guess is everybody who gets indicted by John Durham, there's a 90% chance he's, they're going to end up getting convicted. So my suspicion, so I, I, the other is I don't think he's made any mistakes in these reports. You, you can dispute him. You can dispute anybody, I suppose. But John Durham is not a Trump uh, stooge. He is not a partisan Republican. Nobody really knows his politics. By and large, he is seen as being Joe Friday, just the facts. He's going to follow the case wherever it goes. And that has turned out to be very bad for Democrats, and it's turned out to be very good for Republicans, who the whole time have thought this was a lot of hype uh, that did not, you know, was not supported by the known facts. Yeah, there's a list of uh, prominent figures on the left who are somehow connected to this whole ordeal, about as long as your arm. And as Jonathan Turley writes over in The Hill, um, the background details of Durham's three indictments so far have assembled an impressive list of quote-unquote great Democrats who contributed directly or indirectly to the creation of the Russia collusion scandal. Indeed, the collusion case increasingly is taking on a type of murder on the Orient Express field in which all of the suspects may turn out to be culprits. And we don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but he does say this about what we've seen so far. Thus, Durham clearly seems to be making a meticulous case that the Steele dossier was a political hit job orchestrated by Clinton operatives. His latest indictment connects Danchenko to several intriguing figures and groups that in turn relate to the Clinton campaign. So, uh, Jim, you know, this is only going to go as far as Merrick Garland wants it to go. And so far, he's not stopping. So I'm just wondering if Obama-Biden world is perfectly fine if all these tentacles reach all the way back to Hillary Clinton. 
I was going to say, I don't know how much any your average Biden administration official, the average Democrat right now is willing to stick their neck out to defend Hillary Clinton. A couple of years ago, it might be a very different story. But now the, the Democrats are a spent force. And I just don't think that uh, uh, you're going to see a lot of Democrats. want. I mean, the, the, what Democrats will do is they'll basically try to ignore it. They'll basically try to hide their, uh, their avert their eyes, not pay a lot of attention, you know. Um, kind of just play off the idea that it's not that big a deal or, oh, everybody knew this or something like that, uh, which will still be embarrassing, but it obviously won't be nearly as embarrassing as saying, oh, you know, you know, Republicans were right about this all along. Yes, exactly. They'll still try to spin it somehow, I'm sure. Uh, in the meantime, we have more delicious food to talk about, and that's from the Wild Alaskan Company, phenomenal seafood, as fresh as you can possibly get. And if you like to cook, you know that flavorful meals start with high-quality food and simple ingredients. With Wild Alaskan Company, their seafood is frozen right after it's caught for peak freshness, so you can avoid the fuss of unhealthy sauces and over-seasoning. Instead, all you need are a few simple ingredients, and you've got a delicious lunch or dinner. We got uh, Wild Alaskan uh, seafood uh, not that long ago. We got salmon. We got a bunch of different types of fish, and we liked all of it. But, oh, my word, Jim, I guess I never had halibut before. Uh, halibut is phenomenal. Even one of my daughters, who, let's just say, is sometimes selective in what she likes to eat, called it the best thing she's ever had. So their halibut is absolutely uh, fantastic. And so was the, the cod and the rockfish. The salmon is always good as well. And so can't recommend Wild Alaskan Company highly enough. Wild Alaskan Company delivers high-quality, sustainably sourced, wild-caught seafood right to your door. Each shipment contains premium cuts of individually wrapped portions of delicious seafood that are ready to prepare and easy to cook. Choose from salmon, cod, Greg's new favorite halibut, or more, <laughs> and or any combination you like. And every month there are different specials to explore. Wild Alaskan Company seafood is how nature intended it to be, which means always wild, never farmed or modified, and it contains no antibiotics. You might want antibiotics, but you would not want your fish to have it. You can adjust, pause, or cancel your membership anytime. And they offer 100% satisfaction guaranteed or your money back. Right now, you can get $15 off your first box of premium seafood when you visit wildalaskancompany.com slash martini. That's wildalaskan, A-L-A-S-K-A-N, company.com slash martini for $15 off your first box. wildalaskancompany.com slash martini. And don't forget to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. All right, Jim, on to the bad martini. We were hoping to delay and distract and just not get to this vote for a very long time. And it seemed like the Democrats weren't going to get to an infrastructure vote because they couldn't get their factions to agree on which bill should come first between the, the reconciliation bill and the infrastructure bill that had already passed the Senate. And uh, Nancy Pelosi set another completely arbitrary deadline that we laughed about last week. And then she decided on Friday, we are having this vote. But even late into the evening, it appeared that she didn't have the votes because it's a narrow majority for the Democrats in the House. And six progressive Democrats said, no, we're not doing this until we have uh, further agreement on the reconciliation bill, which is much more to their liking. And so she didn't have the votes until 13. House Republicans showed up and completely bailed her out and bailed Joe Biden out. And who knows what that'll mean for the supposedly build back better or the budget blowout bill that they still have to work on here. 
But, Jim, you know, 13 names are a lot to go through, but guess what? We're going to do them all right now. Don Bacon, Nebraska. Nicole Maliotakis, New York. Don Young of Alaska. Adam Kinzinger of Illinois. Fred Upton, Michigan. Jeff Van Drew and Chris Smith of New Jersey. Andrew Garbarino, John Katko, and Tom Reed of New York. Anthony Gonzalez of Ohio. Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania. And David McKinley of West Virginia. As uh, Rich Lowry, your boss, said uh, on Twitter that night, uh, it's very bad on the merits already. I mean, only about a tenth of it actually goes to infrastructure out of the $1.2 trillion. But politically, the Democrats were completely flopping around like a fish dying on the dock here. And, uh, well, stepping up to the plate, here comes a baker's dozen Republicans to ruin the whole thing. Yeah, look, the, how bad this is depends upon a great deal on what happens with the Build Back Better legislation. And these 13 House Republicans, uh, well, first of all, keep in mind, three of them are retiring. Yep. And so my colleague, Phil Klein, who I, I align with 90-some percent of the time, and it's not just because he's a Jets fan, um, <laughs> he, he was spitting hot fire. He was livid about this. And I think pretty easily just, to, it's very easy to see a scenario where Phil Klein looks really vindicated by all this. Um, if the, so of the 13, he was, uh, Phil Klein was saying, it's time for Kevin McCarthy to go. I have no particular love for Kevin McCarthy. I think you can make an argument that he's been really underwhelming as a House minority leader. But in this particular set of circumstances, I don't think you can blame him, certainly not single-handedly, for how the vote shook out uh, and the fact that it passed with Republican votes that ended up being necessary for its passage. Most notably because there were 15 House Demo- 215 House Democrats with 218, you've got a majority, even if everybody's in place and there's one uh, vacancy from a Democratic seat. Um, three of the House Republicans who voted for it are, are retiring. No caucus leader has that much leverage over somebody who uh, is retiring. So you add those three to the 215, they were going to get to 218. And what's more is that of the six no- Democratic no votes, four of them were the squad, AOC and the rest. And they voted no after it was clear it was going to pass. So I have a suspicion. I can't prove this, but I think it's very likely that if not enough Republicans switched over and it looked like they were going to uh, lose this vote, I think some members of the squad would have changed their mind and suddenly saved uh, the bill and and said, "Okay, I don't want to sink, you know, Biden's agenda. We're going to get build back better passed too, et cetera, et cetera. So it's passed. It's going to get to the president's desk. It's going to get signed. We're going to have $1.2 trillion in infrastructure spending. We're going to get $50 million a year for the weed agency. La-di-da. Not happy about it. Uh, out of all the spending proposals from Democrats, you could argue this is the least bad, but that's still a very you know low bar to clear. The other aspect is so it now depends on what happens with Build Back Better. Uh, the House moderates said they're going to vote for it after this, as long as the CBO score says that it checks out. It's Congressional Budget Office. Uh, if the Congressional Budget Office comes out and shows them numbers that they like, they'll say, yes, it'll pass the House, and then it goes to the Senate. And then the question is, what do Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin think? Now, it's possible the CBO comes back with numbers that House moderate Democrats don't like, and they say they don't want to vote for it. And it's possible that Build Back Better crashes and burns. And if it crashes and burns, then these 13 House Republicans don't look so bad. They can say, look, we got to pass what we wanted to pass. We got infrastructure spending, which we think is one of the better kinds of spending. We get to look like we're bipartisan because we're not knee-jerk proposing everything the president wants. And we didn't get this other terrible big spending bill. Their position will be somewhat defensible if it shakes out that way. But let's face it, this didn't happen in a vacuum. This happened after uh, Republicans kicked butt up and down the ballot 
all over the country on, on Tuesday. And Democrats are feeling absolutely terrible and freaking out and panicking. And all of a sudden, they get this you know, fairly significant legislative victory. Does this make them more unified and more likely to pass Build Back Better? If it does, then these 13 House Republicans look like idiots because they've managed to basically hand Biden a big win when he and his party desperately needed it the most. And it looked like both of them were probably going to go down in flames. Although, like I said, maybe Pelosi probably could have sque- you know, arm twisted the... Uh, uh, the squad into support. So it's one of those things where I don't think we're going to be able to make a full judgment on how smart or unwise this was uh, for another couple of weeks. It's supposed to take another two weeks for the CBO score to come out. But I think it's entirely possible that after looking like the Democrats were in this unbelievable disaster, uh, that lo and behold, somewhere, somehow, they've managed to pull out not just the bipartisan infrastructure bill, but maybe they get Build Back Better too. And if Build Back Better too passes, then I don't care how you say that, that this has been a good year for Joe Biden, even with all of his other flaws, all of his other problems and stuff like that. The size of government's going to expand to great. There are a whole bunch of liberal um, uh, programs in here. And this is the, the you know, Democrats will be able to say this was a really good, really successful, um, uh, you know, year for them. And I think it'll be in, in that sense. A lot of this will be on the, uh, the those 13 House Republicans. Don't forget about the 19 Republicans in the Senate who voted for this, too, uh, taking uh, reconciliation off the table for the for the infrastructure bill. And uh, it was a good week up until then, Jim. Uh, it's a good election. Great week. <laughs> good election. Still pretty good anyway. Still pretty good. We'll see where it goes from here. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, please do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already. Tell your friends about us as well. We are always very grateful for your kind reviews and your five-star ratings. Please, please keep those coming. Get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Monday, and please join us again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Hi, it's Dana Lash, host of The Dana Show. Every day, I'm here to keep you up to speed on the most important stories and info that you need to know in your very busy life. And if you're always on the go and you want to stay connected, just download our daily podcast and take it with you. It's a great way to get up to speed on what you need to know and what legacy media may not be telling you. Visit DanaRadio.com and click on the podcast link or subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.